You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is Flex and Herds here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. And Herds, we have reached the end of A Decent Interval by Simon Brett. And Herds, you Look, must be feeling I pretty feel, good about I this. I feel relieved, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know, I was a little tense <laughs> in the first, what, two-thirds of this this story getting through it. Um, I had a, at least one uh, mm-hmm. scene at the end, uh, towards the end of this novel, where I was thinking, is it really, is it really going to be Baza? Is that really where this is going? I was ready to throw <laughs> my phone across the roof. That was actually who the killer was in the end. Uh, but thankfully, we went with a more sensible choice. Uh. And it was, in fact, uh, the understudy turned accidental manslaughter turned potential murderer. Um, uh, what's his name? Mm-hmm. Will Portlock. That's his name. I was like, wait, Will is Will Portlock. something? <laughs> I, I'm a little, I'm a little concerned here, Herds, because I thought you Thank had you. really nailed this book. I, I thought that your understanding of the themes and the way that all of the foreshadowing about uh, Charles Paris mm. being a person out of time lent into the solution was really excellent. But now, Herds, I'm dubious because you can barely remember look, the poor culprit's name. Is that I I am pretty good, I would say. I'm gonna look, I am I'm excellent even at keeping track of the thematics of the story. Mm-hmm. However, I always get to a point where I'm flip-flopping on like which way the thematics are gonna go. Like, clearly this generational thing is important. So it's probably gonna be either, you mm-hmm. know, Millie or Will, like that sort of thing. And also I am bad at names. Um the twist, uh, the sort of twist <laughs> that I, I didn't quite predict in this novel, that uh, the reason, the, the why done it of Will doing all this was because um, his father, Porty, who is a character who has showed up a couple of times and is kind of awful, um, is actually his his father, mm. and then he's trying to impress him. I did not see that coming because I do not pay attention to names. It is just that that's, that's the thing. That's just how I be. <laughs> that's just how I am yeah, with novels in general. Part of me was considering withholding the second point from you on account of such a glaring oversight, but on per- further reflection, I think, Herds, you did such an excellent job understanding the subtext of the novel that you deserve that second point, regardless of whether it was for the mystery well, or not. I, I appreciate it. I'll take it. I'll take a pretty point. That's it all, might be gutsy of me to be just throwing away <laughs> points like this willy-nilly, and it might come back to bite me later on, but you know what? That's a that's a risk I'm willing to take, Herds. Don't worry, I'll, I'll I'll go easy on you with the next book. No, I won't. I definitely won't. Oh, it's gonna be a doozy. But we'll we'll talk more about that in the in the third part. We kind of when we get there. So I think the first thing I wanted to talk about with this novel, Herds, was that final payoff scene when uh, Will was confronted by Charles Paris. I think you mean the best scene in the entire novel. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I was I was wonderful. I loved the back and forth. I loved watching Will's, like, clearly not very well thought out plan crumbling before Mm. his eyes. Um, Although I am disappointed that we have had so many murder mysteries in and around theatres and theatrical situations, and we still haven't had a prop gun murder. (laughs) I I am very disappointed. It was right there. Like, he had the gun in his hands. It was a prop gun that apparently was turned into a real gun. I don't know how that works, but it was there. And and some mm. didn't go for it. So some Brett, look, wonderful story, but there's one thing you should change. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can I can understand your concern here because it is very confusing how that is delivered when they come up and they say, "Oh yeah, you know, this was a prop gun, but I've had it converted to a real gun," and it, it feels like a bit of a mess. But I think ultimately that boils down to my favorite part of that scene, which is that. Even though you know exactly what is going on, you really have 
absolutely no idea what is going on because there is no context for the balance of for power sure, in the sure. scene. Yeah, it's it's one of those scenes where, you know, it's it's implied that it's a prop gun and also that it is a real gun and you're not really sure what's going on. Um, and of course, there's more of Charles Paris who is, you know, saying, I don't really know what I'm doing here, but I'm going to fake it till I make it. Um, and that was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. It's such an excellent continuation of the thematic yeah. that we had in the previous segment when we went to deal with the PR agency mm-hmm. where Charles comes in and he thinks that he's on the back foot, but reali- realizes halfway through that he has them completely on the back foot. And that constant back and forth between the balance of power is one of just the strongest suits of the characterization in this novel. And it was fantastic to see it conveyed in a scene where really I would have thought it had no place. You know, he's caught the guy, they're in a theater, and just the prop gun being introduced as a tool there was, I think, one of the most clever but well-integrated ways that Simon Brett could have come in and let there be that imbalance of power because Charles doesn't know whether it's a prop gun. He expects it's a prop gun, which is where he gets this false bravado that he mentions in his uh, internal monologue. Yeah. But, you know, because you don't actually know, there's a brilliant underlying tension and confusion to the scene that is so satisfying. I mean, I look, I love Charles Paris kind of by the end of this book. Mm. Um, it is an underlying, uh, I, I guess, theme. I guess it's a theme that he constantly has more power than he thinks he does. Yes. Um, despite him being portrayed as a very flawed uh, and very weak character, we have to remember that this story is, is more or less being told from his perspective. You know, he says, you know, I don't know how to deal with this technology and I don't understand how to talk to PR people. Um, and yet technology doesn't really have anything to do with the murder, right? Like it's part of, mm. uh, it's more related to um, the the mystery of how, uh, Mr. Root got injured on the set than it is the actual murder case. Um, and even in his, uh, in his relationship with his, with his wife, when he's having conversations with her, he'll, he'll say something that he thinks is like pretty clever, but his wife will undercut him and go, Oh, he'll, he'll like second guess, second guess himself when his ideas aren't as bad as he thinks they are, or as bad as his wife even tells him that they are. Um, and I really, I enjoy that undercurrent because I like vulnerable characters um, I enjoy, uh, especially in a, in a detective novel where theoretically, um, and practically the detective has all of the power. Um, like he has the power to turn in, uh, will at the end of the novel and doesn't, which is fantastic. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't, he, he like, he, he totally, you know, goes for like the, the good guy ending, the good detective ending where he like recognizes that he has this power because Will Portlock is, a mentally deranged possible sociopath and he needs help. Yeah. I was, (laughs) I was a little bit disappointed by that scene with Will at the end, not because of the scene as a whole, but because I felt that the character development that Will had there was done so off screen that it felt more like Charles was explaining why he should be a good person rather than Will actually coming to understand it himself. You know, you obviously picked up on this last week when you were talking about how, uh, Will was taken off screen to hide the culprit from the audience, but the end result is that it doesn't feel as earned as really in context it might yeah. be. I think um, it's not really, it's not nearly as bad as, uh, for example, just to pick something out of the out of the blue, you know, wrapping up the mystery halfway through the story and then dedicating the entire second half of the novel to recounting the exact step by step of how the uh, the killer became a killer. It's not quite that bad. Um, Herds. <laughs> 
Yeah. Is this foreshadowing you're doing um, to me right now in the show? Indirect foreshadowing, but we'll get there okay. in part three. Point is, I think I know where we're going with this, but anyway, <laughs> anyway carry uh, on. Uh, um, but yeah, Simon Brett has done a very kind of, uh, I would say, standard tactic in murder mystery novels, um, in that he's taken the murderer and put them kind of at the at the fringes of the story. Uh-huh. Um, and we've seen this in plenty of other murder mysteries where you know the killer is still active in the story and is introduced in the first part and, you know, they're prevalent, mm-hmm. you know, cause it can't just be, ah, yes, it was the butler who never said anything the entire story that was the killer. Cause that would be dumb. Um, the, the problem is I think that Simon Brett, uh, though he has done a really good job of setting up the killer in the first act, Will is completely absent for the second third of, of the story. Um, he doesn't appear until after uh, we've actually solved everything. Yeah. Um, and I do think that's to the detriment of the character. Because, you know, it does, the, the implication of Will's arc is that he was in a poor mental state, then accidentally killed someone, and then that declines his mental state further until eventually Charles comes in and says, hold on, stop, put the brakes on, kid, you're continuing to make mistakes. But because all that happened off screen, you don't really get to feel it. Yeah, he's in denial of the consequences of his actions. Mm. Um, and this is very much in line with the, the kind of character that he is, because he's trying to, at all costs, show his father that he's worth a damn. Yeah. <laughs> Exemplified perfectly when Porty w- walks in the room and sees the person dressed up as Hamlet and his son, who is another character, and then turns to the person who's dressed up as Hamlet and says, oh, by golly, you have got the part. Congratulations, son. Yep. And Will's just standing there with the gun like... What am I? <laughs> Chop liver? It's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a very cruel moment. I honestly thought by the end of that scene that uh, that Porty was going to get a bullet. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. I mean, that would be the like cathartic moment where- um, I, I suppose it would make sense. Yeah. He like f- learns to assert himself and like push the expectations of his father away and like rebel against the authority and the whole generational violence thing. I don't know. I thought, I thought that the more logical conclusion to that scene was going to be the even worse- <laughs> Uh, where Sam would go, oh, yes, don't worry, I am your son, and use that as an excuse to leave the room, leaving a dejected Will Portlock with his father basically proud of him under false pretenses. Maybe Sam assumes the identity of Will Portlock, and they switch, and that's how. That'd be a great ending. Look, Simon, what are you doing? (laughs) These are the twist endings that you need. All right, Herds, well, it's just about time to bid this novel farewell, but we have a couple of segments left in the show, including later on, we're going to be talking about my method for solving this novel as the first book I used my quote-unquote signature method on? Is it a signature method if nobody knows about it? Is that? I, I don't think I can really <laughs> call it that, but it sounds fancier if I do. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds, and we will be back with more on Simon Brett's A Decent Interval in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here, back again with the incredible Simon Brett, continuing our conversation from last week's show. Be sure to check that out on the podcast. Simon, we're going to jump back into this. Another thing that we've been talking about on this show is that we've done a series of stories. We've done, you know, Nio Marsh. We've done Nio Marsh and Stella Duffy looking at how the theater is portrayed in murder mystery because they have such a strong connection. And we thought it was very interesting to see how your novel used the themes and kind of a parallel structure to Hamlet to involve the reader in the story and kind of raise the stakes. Considering that you're using such a, you know, modern framework for what people knew with Charles Paris, what led you to involving something as, you know, I guess, old as Hamlet to kind of balance that out? Well, I think it's always very helpful with a book if you've got 
some kind of superstructure, you know. So if you base it on, a, I mean, the actual the mechanics of getting a play on is a superstructure, if you like, because you've got rehearsal. You you know you've got the build up towards the first night. You've got the the technical getting all that kind of stuff. So you've got one level of superstructure. But if you can also play with you know a literary work and use that as a superstructure too, it kind of helps the well, it helps the writing actually because you know you can keep. I mean, you don't want to make it too heavy, um, and there seems to be a vogue now for a lot of people sort of rewriting classic stories, um, which you know I think they should provide stories of their own really, uh, rather than going back to the classics. Um, but you know, if you if you've got an ongoing reference to something, I, I think that can be quite helpful. It's also quite interesting, I think, looking at, you know, that relationship between the theatre and murder mystery and how strong that has been. And we've asked the question many times on this show, what creates that connection? But I think uh, what I'd like to ask you, Simon, is what makes that connection special? And why do you think it still works in a novel as modern as A Decent Interval? I think, well, I mean, in my own case, you know, I, I love theatre. I mean, I love show business. And when I left university, you know, I'd done quite a lot of acting at university and I thought, you know, do I want to be an actor? Um, and I decided that although I don't know whether I've got the talent, but I certainly haven't got the temperament for being an actor because that constant rejection and, you know, bouncing back and going to the next audition and thinking I'm going to get this one, and I'd, I'd be terrible at that. Um, and so I've ended up as a writer who is totally intrigued by showbiz. Um, and it means I can, you know, it's given me carte blanche to explore uh, something which fascinates me over, well, 20 books with, with Charles Paris. And I remember once being on a radio program with Reginald Hill, you know, who wrote the D.L. and Pascoe series. And he said, I have never found that crime writing has stopped me from writing about what I want to write about. And I thought that was, and that certainly applies to me. So, I mean, so long as there are, you know, people putting on new productions and doing different things in the theatre. Um, I mean, uh, the current situation, I doubt if I'll ever get around to writing about it, but, you know, where you've got theatre in virtual lockdown and people are being very inventive and they're streaming things and they're putting, you know, they're using, using the new technology to do theatrical stuff. I mean, that's a fascinating subject for a book that someone will write. Probably not me, but, um, you know, so it, it, it's a constantly changing world. And the whole thing of, I mean, particularly in England, in, um, uh, you know, the way English stars are now getting involved in American long, long haul television, as I think of it, because most of them are too long anyway. Um, you know, that that's an interesting area that suddenly the, you know, the, the sort of the career pattern for uh, an English actor has changed very considerably. I mean, it used to be that, you know, a very few of the very big stars would go to Hollywood and become international. But now, you know, a lot of um, less eminent actors are, are becoming hugely successful in American series. Um, and that's something in the most recent um, Charles Paris, I sort of a, a, a deadly habit. I, I take that on too a bit. So, I mean, it's a constantly changing world, which um, I have great fun exploring. Yeah. Now, 
The other thing I wanted to address before we before we close this out is last time you were on the show, you made a comment when we were talking about the Golden Age and the Detection Club and how things had evolved to the modern state of crime fiction, as you wrote in your foreword of The Floating Admiral. And you said that after the Second World War, people kind of lost a taste for capital punishment. And it was very interesting to me looking at that perspective on how uh, crime has evolved over the years and looking at the very... I guess, unresolved way that this crime goes completely unpunished. How open do you think the modern audience is to these unresolved kind of left in the air endings like at the end of Dee's Interval where we still get that conclusion, but it's just left floating as to what will actually happen to the criminal? Yeah, well, I think, uh, I mean, it, it used to, you know, I'm not in favor of the death penalty for any reason other than crime fiction, um, where, you know, you would get, I, I mean, if you think of the cop-out at the end of a lot of golden age crime fiction where Hercule Poirot or whoever, you know, points the finger at somebody and says, and therefore you are the murderer, and the murderer goes off and gets hanged. And um, I mean, you never do the bit of would the case actually stand up in court. Whereas now you you really have to do that, you know. And and I think a lot of cases which would be proved to the satisfaction of the average mystery reader would not stand up in court at all. You know, you um, it, it's really quite difficult to get a murder conviction. Um, so I think that has changed with the you know the ending of the death penalty certainly in the United Kingdom. Uh, it, and, and also you've got this other, you know, the development of when a murderer is going to be released. Um, you know, what is going to be the effect when, when that happens. Whereas previously, you know, it was so neatly tied up with a bow or tied up with a noose, if you prefer, um, that, that that didn't become an issue. And so I think the kind of grayness, you know, it, is he going to actually get convicted of this crime, although we all know he did it, is a kind of realistic, it's an acknowledgement of the change. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's really excellent. And it's been really interesting, actually, as we've covered our murder mystery world tour here on Death of the Reader, looking at how you can almost trace out that development in the writing of crime fiction from generation to generation as the mode of punishment and the mode of resolution for our culprit has evolved from the golden age standards up to what we see in a decent interval today. And it's it's a very nice snapshot of how history has changed its perception both on crime and crime fiction. I think it is. I mean, I, I think because, you know, a lot of crime fiction is accused of being, you know, not of this world. It's sort of, you know, sort of parallel cloud cuckoo land. But there are certain things that you do have to acknowledge. I mean, there's another, there's a whole thesis to be written about, you know, how the invention of the mobile phone affected um, crime fiction. Because if you think in the golden age, they spend half their time sort of rushing on trains and things to get to post, uh, to telephone boxes and that kind of thing, uh, where suddenly all that is removed. And I mean, if, you know, if somebody had a mobile phone in the mousetrap, it'd be a very short play. <laughs> what an excellent observation. Simon, thank you very much for joining us here on Death of the Reader this week. It has been an absolute pleasure and an honor having you on to talk about your book, A Decent Interval. We're going to jump back into discussing that right now on Death of the Reader. You're listening to 2SER.
You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour in our final weeks on Simon Brett's A Decent Interval. Herds has solved and scored his points for this novel. We're very proud of him. He's grown up to be a big, strong boy in the murder uh, yeah. mystery game. Wow. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Condescending much? <laughs> Flex. Who's the person with the points here? It's me. It is you. Now, Herds, you. <laughs> the first thing that we should get out the gate, as we do every week, is was this yeah. novel fair? I think so. I, I think it was. Like, <sighs> this is a problem. I'm never a great judge of, like, how fair a novel is, but again- mm-hmm. Like, the clues are all there. It's just that the novel spends so much time running around with red herrings trying to distract you. Um, (laughs) Like, if you cut out the middle section of this story and just said, there was something strange found in the the mascara, like, that's- You'd have the same mystery. Yeah, like, you'd have the mystery there. Um, Mm. We get a lot more time to flesh out Charles Paris and all the other characters and, like, learn about the theater and all that sort of thing, which I love. Um, But, I mean, the clues that we're given are really most, um, like- embolic in uh in in the character of will um and the way that he acts that's that's kind of the the social clues that we're given so i think it's fair enough in that regard Mm. i think if you told me before we read this book how much time it spends nearly entirely extraneously from the mystery itself just having character scenes i would not have thought it could be as well pulled off as it is. Yeah, for sure. I think that the construction of this novel is exquisite in a way that is very unique, and it makes me so satisfied to come back and read it with almost fresh eyes as it's been so long since I'd even thought about the novel. I was going to say, it's been two and a half years, something like that? Yeah. It's been a, it's been a while, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was it was such a good time, and going back through it, it really made me think both... My initial claim going into this novel was that, yes, I was going to show you my method for solving it, as this was the book that I first tried that on, but also that perhaps the reason I found the method so effective in this book was purely confirmation bias... Because when you get particularly to the second section of the book, it really doesn't have much to do with the method at all. No. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we spend so much time just going from place to place to place, uh, seeing all these exciting locales and people, but we don't, uh, as we said, you know, earlier on this part and in my own theories, we don't spend a lot Mm. of time with the actual culprit, um, (laughs) which is a problem. Yeah. Now, I, 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 of course, don't want to bamboozle the audience. We are going to talk about my method here, Herds, because Better. I think that, if anything, the fact that it is so simple to associate with my method makes it very easy to kind of explain how it works. Sure. Because to my mind, Herds, the only two real culprits mm. that we have going on here uh, is, is Baza, Baza and Portlock. Interesting. Not Millie? Why not Millie? Uh, I think that Millie is brought in a, a bit late into the novel. She was definitely, I think, my number three suspect, and particularly when we're starting to deal with the mascara, is uh, is very convoluted. But that is, that is interesting, because she is brought into the story in the same scene uh, as Will, is the thing. It's more that I think her character starts to be fleshed out a fair bit later on because she's a background piece to Sam for a a little bit, you know, a little bit too much of the novel. Um, Okay, fair enough. I think that perhaps more the way to look at it is that I saw Millie going through this novel as she was the innocent girl who was, you know, under the wing of everyone else here and didn't really ever step up to have any form of motive particularly when we look at Baza and Charles's realization that he thought he knew what the crime was towards the end of the novel, you can see that 
the the motive of the culprit particularly starts to fall apart when you look at Millie. Interesting, interesting. Obviously, you could argue the case that she wanted her Sam to get his way. You could argue the case that she was having a, a competitive stoush with Katrina. Yeah. But I don't think that any of those things really hold weight when you look at the thematics of the novel. You don't think that Millie was trying to get on the same pedestal that Sam was placed upon? I think that it was possible, but their relationship is portrayed as too supportive, I thought, for that to happen. All right, fair enough. But let's let's get to the method itself, because the reason I highlight Baza and Will here is that if we pick these two characters, the way that I normally do it is I line out the characters I think are most likely, and I work backwards. I assume that they are the culprit, and I think about how best they would have done it and go back and try find clues pointing in their direction. Because one of my favorite rules, particularly when we look at SS Van Dyne's rule set, is that the solution to the story should be staring you in the face as you go back through it. So if you go back through it with a fabricated solution already in mind and try to look for it staring you in the face, to my mind, that is the most well-intentioned way that the author will be able to show you the solution to their crime. So who did you work with first? You only thought that Baza and Will were, were likely to be the culprits here, so you start with one of them, I assume? Well, I originally started with five main when I went through this novel uh, in full, uh, in order of priority. I had Will, Baza, Millie, Sam, and, uh, oh my goodness, who was the last one? Is it Ned, maybe? It might have been Ned. It's been a while since I've, I've actually dug up the notes but I condensed it to my two most likely ones here. And the thing that immediately caught my eye when going back through this story is I went back through with Will first, and the first thing I noticed was that in the opening chapters of the book, the name Porty is mentioned. And particularly because motive is one of the most useful things to look at when you're going back through the novel, I thought to myself that Porty is too similar to Portluck to really just be a throwaway line, and especially if you consider what those first two chapters do at all in the context of this novel, it makes the most sense to assume that we are foreshadowing something that will crop up later on. Sure. There is a bit of a red herring when Thibaut Pinchas so- shows up later on, but when Porty shows up later on, and we've also had uh, Will Portluck talking about his father showing up, uh, it, it, you know, it makes things pretty apparent, I thought. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So you think that the existence of two names that look similar is enough to condemn someone? No, I thought that that was perhaps the the biggest thing pointing me in Will's direction and why he was damned from the start when I uh, began to use this method, because his name was staring me in the face first thing when I went to look back in the history of the book. The other thing that I noticed when I went back, particularly when looking at Baza, is the way that Baza is a, a bit of a scene smith. He's one of the actors who doesn't seem to switch off off the stage, and particularly when he's talking about the habits of actors and how, you know, they're good at spreading rumors around. There's particular suspicion drawn on Baza there, but one one thing that I noticed going back through the novel was that Baza was never really using that suspicion in a way that I thought was was weighty. It's only really Charles's, you know, realization at the end that could have could have locked him in there if it wasn't for the final unveil about Porty. I actually thought that the construction of the balance between those two suspects was very nice because Baza worked so well in terms of how and what he did in the story, but his motive absolutely collapsed. And particularly when you're looking at more modern novels, I think that it is very important 
to look on that front. Yeah. Anyway, we should we should talk about the book for for next next week. Oh my goodness. Okay, have... wait, 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 wait. All of the foreshadowing you've done. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Arthur I... Conan Doyle. Okay. Which means Holmes. Okay. Yes. We're in I... the UK. Simon Brett Theatre. It's Herds. I, I it's don't a know Herds that, pick. I don't know that you could pick the exact novel. You're insane. But well, I'll, I mean, listen. If it if it was me, it might have been the, a study in Scarlet. But can cons- mm, the only thing I, the only thing I'm going to guess here, Herds, mm-hmm. is that there's going to be an, an inordinate amount of Watson in this novel, which I am so on board uh, for. I had a look at Study in Scarlet, but it 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 wastes a lot of time. So we're not doing that one. Instead, we're going to be doing the Sign of Four. Uh, uh, by Arthur Conan Doyle, of course. Uh, and we're going to be going through that. And yeah, it has a lot of Watson. It explains his kind of, his backstory and, and all sorts of lovely little character details. Um, and yeah, so for next week, we will be doing chapters one to five. Uh, and we'll see how you go with those. And if you can solve the mystery um, and perhaps even solve Sherlock Holmes' mind, which is pretty <laughs> convoluted at times. Uh, <laughs> good luck. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I wanna I wanna say Herds, this better be the only Holmes this year. He's a man I can only take in small doses. Look, I mean, so I'm glad we're getting as much Watson as possible. Look, maybe we could maybe we could watch the Robert Downey Jr. movies and finally do an episode on them, even though we throw shade at them like every other episode. Uh, Listen, if you can get me Robert Downey Jr. on the on show, the show oh, that's it. That's my mission, Robert Downey Jr. I know you're listening let's to this. Let's make it happen. Get on here. Get in here. We need you. Now more than ever. Alrighty. Well, Herds, it has been a pleasure talking with you about A Decent Interval by Simon Brett. I genuinely think that if you are looking for modern, traditional writers in the field of crime fiction, Simon Brett is a wonderful, wonderful place to visit and has been the closest thing I can call to a murder mystery home since I started getting into actually solving these novels. So it was a pleasure to, you know be able to diffuse my homesickness per se yeah yeah well now it's time for some homes sickness oh, if that's it, awful. I got him yeah oh. keep listening to death of the reader more next week um, <laughs> yeah. we will see you then you're listening to 2SER